So 1 Samuel chapter 8, and let's read verses 4 to 6 together. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. (coughs) There is a great tendency for men to regard men. And here in this passage of scripture, we see that the ministry of Samuel, who was the prophet of Israel, the one who revealed the word of God to Israel, that his ministry was coming to an end. It was running out. His sons were perverse men. They were corrupt, and they were unfit to serve as prophets after Samuel. So Samuel is getting old, and his ministry is failing. Uh, You need not turn there, but just a few pages back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we find that Eli the high priest, like Samuel, also had corrupt sons. Hophni and Phinehas. And scripture says that they were immoral, worthless men who did not know the Lord, that they despised the offering of the Lord. But Eli did not rebuke his sons as he should, and Israel ended up becoming casual in its view of God. The people thought that if they could just bring the Ark of the Covenant out in battle, if you remember, that it would give them victory. The elders said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They recognized it was the Lord that had not given them victory. They said, Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the Ark of the Covenant is brought out in battle, and the outcome is that it is taken by the Philistines, and Hophni, Phinehas, and 30,000 foot soldiers die. And scripture recounts the dramatic events that follow. For when Eli hears that his sons are dead and the ark has been taken, he falls backward and breaks his neck, and he dies. And if you turn back to chapter (coughs) 4, Starting at verse 19, we see now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, 
the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. Eli the high priest is dead, his sons are dead, his daughter-in-law is dead. There's been a massive slaughter, the ark of God has been taken. What does man's ministry accomplish? What is the outcome of the ministry of man? What is the result of the intercession of sinners on behalf of other sinners? What is the outcome of the ministry of man? Ichabod. Ichabod. The glory of God departs. Eli had warned his sons, if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? The ministry of man had failed. The priesthood was corrupted, so God brought it to a sudden end. God keep us from trusting men. God keep us from looking to men. If a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But there is a great tendency for men to regard man. The Lord promised Eli, saying, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. And as you know, the Lord calls Samuel to be a prophet and in many ways a priest also over Israel to judge Israel, and the Lord is with him, and Samuel let none of his words fall to the ground. He was he was faithful. Well, the Philistines return the ark, and Samuel tells Israel that if they return to the Lord with all their heart and throw out their idols and direct their heart to serve the Lord alone, that the Lord will deliver them from the Philistines. And in chapter 7, Samuel says, I will pray to the Lord for you. That's chapter 7, verse 5. I will pray to the Lord for you. And in chapter 7, verse 9, Samuel cries out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answers him. And if you read chapter 7, starting in verse 10, Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them, so that they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So how how do you go from Ichabod... To Ebenezer. How do you go from the glory of God has departed to a stone of help? What's the answer? 
intercession. Samuel cries to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answers him. Well, if divine revelation stopped here, it would seem that Samuel is the answer to man's fundamental problem in knowing God. But, of course, the providence of God makes it clear that Samuel is only a shadow of man's true need. As we discussed, Eli's sons were worthless, and Samuel's sons were perverse. Samuel's line ends. So again, we ask ourselves, if a man sins against another, we know God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Who can intercede? There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There's one mediator. There's only one who can intercede. Well, why do we go on like this? Don't we already know all of these things here today? I'm not so sure. You see, there is a great tendency for men to regard man. For men to look to men rather than to God. Eli was not it. Samuel was not it, although his grave is venerated today by multiple religions. As soon as the Israelites are confronted with the weakness and the uncertainty of men, they are made to come to grip with the question of God's faithfulness. Can I really trust God? Can I go on with God? Men would much rather often put themselves under another man than under God. And this is true even of professing Christians. What did Paul say to the church in Corinth? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. We act like mere men when we identify ourselves fundamentally with anyone other than Jesus Christ. What is man? So then, he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. The greatest teacher, the greatest apostle in the history of the church, Paul says, is nothing. So we need to be on guard not to identify ourselves with men not to consider ourselves as being under a particular man's ministry. I do not think it is right. Brethren, we are under the Lord. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no other name. Acts 4.12, the Lord was king of Israel. He was the one who had given them victory. God had delivered them from calamity and from distress. He was the one who had brought them out of Egypt. But what was the people's response? We read it. Chapter 8, 
latter part of verse 5, now appoint a king over us or for us to judge us like all the nations. Samuel was only a man, but he had been faithful. He had not defrauded or bribed or stolen anything. That's recorded in, in, in chapter 12. I'm not embellishing there. That's what scripture tells us. In chapter 12, Samuel says to the nation, you have found nothing in my hand. He says, I, I've done nothing wrong to you. But the people didn't trust God to raise up another prophet or another judge after him. No, they wanted to be like the other nations. And isn't that the great problem in our age, especially with the internet? We want to be like others. We want a hero. We want a star that looks like us that we can follow. God already was their king, but they didn't want him to be their king. They were comparing themselves with the other nations around them. They wanted to be like the other nations. Well, Samuel warns them, but it doesn't do any good. You read in chapter 8, verse 11, he said that Samuel, talking to the people, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons. Verse 13, he will also take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards. Verse 16, he will also take your male servants. Verse 17, he will take a tenth of the flock. Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So there's two things here. When men put their trust in man, they reject God as their king. You cannot have both. You cannot put yourself under man and also be in submission to God. That's the first, not ultimately. Those things are impossible, fundamentally speaking, to maintain both at the same time. When men put their trust in man, they reject God as king. The second thing is, when men put their trust in man, they reject God the king who gives, and instead subject themselves to man, the king who takes. And we see that in the text clearly. Now, I do need to clarify. Scripture makes it very clear that we are are to submit to governing authorities, right? Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, there is no support for anarchy In Scripture, right, provided that human law doesn't contradict Scripture, we are to render to all what is due them, honor to whom honor is due, Romans 13, 7. Hebrews 13 says that we are to obey our leaders and submit to them as as our elders in the church because they keep watch over our souls. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord for this is right. This is all... Very abundant in scripture, 
which calls us to submit to our authorities. But authorities themselves on earth are not to become an object of hope or fundamental trust for us. You see, we are not to worship earthly authorities. And I I think this is a timely warning for the church today. We must not look fundamentally to men. Our pastors, our parents, our governors cannot save us. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So we have to fight the tendency to regard man too highly. If you trust in man, you will be disappointed. People fail us because they're sinners. A man or a woman may be used of God, but but they're only people. They are not the creator. Well, in in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, the people cry out to God for a king, and God gives them what they want. And I think this is a warning to us that we should be very careful what what we pray for. It reminds me when I was a boy and I would ask my dad if I could do something and he'd tell me I didn't, he didn't think it was a good idea. But I would keep asking him. And he would repeat it, I, I don't want you to do that, I don't think it's wise. But eventually, his response would be, you can do what you want. And then I knew that I shouldn't do it. <clears throat> right. Well, here, that's what God says to the people. You do what you want. But they don't, they don't heed that. God gives them what they pray for. He gives them what they want, a choice, tall, handsome man. That is how Scripture describes Saul. Because people don't care much for matters of the heart, do they? But they care a lot about appearance. So God gives them what they want, a man who looks like a king, A man who looks like a king, but a man who is only a shell. You remember where Saul was found on the day he's chosen as king? You remember that? Hiding in the baggage. The man is a prop. He's good to look at, but there's no substance. He's spineless. When men reject God, what are they left with? A hollow shell, a veneer. A mirage. Look at the heroes that the world sets up today. Look at the movie stars. Pretty to look at, but their lives are disgraceful, to say the least. Right? Smoke and mirrors. There's no substance there. Let us heed the central verse of Scripture in Psalm 118.8, which says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in man. That Saul was a failure is the least we could say, right? He was foolish. He was hasty in his decisions. He doesn't inquire of the Lord. He hastily puts his people under an oath that no one could eat until they had had victory against the Philistines. Well, soldiers don't do very well when they can't eat, do they? (laughs) Saul's son Jonathan doesn't hear about this command of his father the king and so Jonathan is hungry and he eats some honey and Saul ends up looking like a fool because he's about to kill his own son for eating honey but the people intercede for Jonathan and he doesn't die but it's a loss for Saul who swears to his own hurt right Saul is disobedient to the Lord 
the Lord tells him to utterly destroy Amalek. Saul was to exterminate them. God specifically said not to spare any people or their possessions, but if you flip over to chapter 15, verse 9, they were to destroy everything. But in chapter 15, verse 9, it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag, that was the king of Amalek, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that is good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. You see what they did. They picked and chose. Well, that's, that's useless. Throw that away. Oh, now this, I can use that. You see, they, they, would, not, they would not obey the Lord. They were unwilling, it says, to obey the Lord. But Saul, he thought that he had done well in all this, actually. Saul actually goes on and sets up a monument for himself right after this. And when Saul sees Samuel, he says, I have carried out the command of the Lord. He says that to him. Saul is blind to his own disobedience. Samuel responds, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul can't deny what has happened, so he blames the disobedience on the people. The problem can't possibly be with himself. You see, the blindness of men's pride. He is the king of Israel, but he refuses to take responsibility for the actions of his own people. He's attempting to shift the blame from himself to someone else. He's full of arrogance. He can't submit to Samuel's rebuke. He says, I did obey the voice of the Lord. That's in verse 20. I did obey the voice of the Lord. Amazing, the brazen disobedience, the blindness. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord. It was unthinkable that Saul could be wrong. But the truth was that Saul had turned back from following the Lord. He was rebellious and insubordinate to the word of the Lord. He fears the people and listens to them rather than fearing the Lord. And the outcome is that God rejects him as king. It's too late for Saul to repent. The thing had been done. And we read in verse 27, as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his rope and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. The glory of Israel is not a man. Man looks at the outward appearance. Men look at Saul's appearance, but they cannot see the man hiding in the baggage. Men can never see the true man, right, in someone else. God sees not as man sees. 
For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So what does God do? God selects a man after his own heart. A shepherd from Bethlehem, whose scripture tells us, leaves his baggage and runs to the battle line. A mighty man of valor, a warrior, to bring victory to Israel. Who would have imagined that that a young man would kill a giant with a sling? The youngest in his family, a lowly shepherd. But scripture tells us that the Lord was with David. So you, you see what is happening in scripture. The valleys are lifted up. And the mountains and the hills are brought low. The works of man are flattened. The arrogant are brought low. And the lowly are exalted. The first are last. And the last are first. You try to keep your life on earth. And you lose it in eternity. You lose your life for Christ's sake. And you keep it. You see. It doesn't make sense to human eyes. Pilate takes Jesus and he scourges him. And the soldiers twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put a purple robe on him and they slap him and they mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. I see no king here. Behold the man, says Pilate. And the very Son of God dies in humility. On a cross like a common criminal, the unthinkable, the unimaginable has happened. And God himself has been crucified on a cross. As the hymnist wrote, sing we the song of the lamb that was slain, dying in weakness, but rising to reign. The lamb crucified, is risen from the dead, never to die again. And he rules and he reigns now at the right hand of God the Father. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. Why? So that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Where then is boasting? Paul asks in Romans 3. It is excluded. There is no boasting. No man can boast. No man can boast of his great wisdom. Brethren, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord alone. What do we say to these things? Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? Brethren, professing Christians regard men all the time. And I think it is an abomination. 
oh, I've met so-and-so. He actually signed the cover of my Bible. You know, so-and-so, oh, he is a great preacher. There are no great men. Eli failed. Saul failed. Samuel ultimately failed when he died. He couldn't continue on. David, of course, fails, right? By numbering the people, by a sin with Bathsheba. David's household was a complete and utter disaster. We can't even consider from the pulpit all the problems in his family in a mixed audience. It's so defiling. Every hero of man has failed since the dawn of time, except the one man, Jesus Christ. Brethren, let us stop regarding men, even godly men. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. We may imitate man's faith in God, but we should not simply imitate men. We don't need to grow up like other men, no matter how godly they are. We need to grow up in the Lord. I think Hebrews 13, 7 and 8 are often considered inappropriately, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. But you must go on there, Because the context there is Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, we imitate men's faith in Jesus Christ. If we look to men, we are sure to be disappointed. But whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Romans 10.11 Let us stop regarding man and let us stop fearing man. Where is our Saul? Where is our David to lead us? Where is our Samuel to intercede? Are we of Paul? Are we of Apollos? May it be said that we follow no one other than the God-man, Jesus Christ. His ministry is perfect, unfailing, eternal, Men always fail, but God never fails. Jesus was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay, because God raised him up from the dead and exalted him to the right hand of God the Father. Stop regarding man. Instead, regard Jesus Christ. He alone is faithful and true. We find Recorded in Revelation 19, the word of God himself, and on his head are many diadems. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. May we worship only him, saying, lead on. O King Eternal, we follow not with fears, for gladness breaks like morning where'er your face appears. Your cross is lifted o'er us, we journey in its light. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, 
O God of might. Amen.